4: Hey, it's the Tom Hartman Podcast, brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work. They'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle, say, 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine, but you know, they've they've sold 5,000, they're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine. I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100 uh, one of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts just a simple number. Here it is, Lot 506 or Lot 622, simple number on it, and you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world and selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines. Earning Cameron Hughes wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold. It was rich. It had the the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock. All these these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. you got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M, C-H as in Cameron Hughes, that's his name, the guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy, and he's doing amazing stuff. chwine.com slash T-H-O-M, or text the word wine, W-I-N-E, text the word wine to 511-511, and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three-bottle order. So text wine to 511-511, Cameron hughes wine. Exceptional value. Extraordinary wine. Now, enjoy the podcast.
1: This is the Tom Hartman Program.
4: Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. And boy, Big news, and uh, let's start with Congressman Mark Pocan. It is Wednesday. It is our first hour. It is Middays with Mark. Congressman Mark Pocan, the co chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus representing the 2nd District of Wisconsin. His website, Pocan.House.gov. His Twitter handle, Rep Mark Pocan. Congressman, welcome back to the program. Congressman? Hello. Here
5: I am. Sorry, Tom. That's Thank quite a... you. Thanks for having me here. Sorry about that. I had the mute
4: button on. Ah, oh, that can be dangerous. Uh, <laughs> great to have you back. So you. we've got, uh, you know, we've got uh, election victories from, from uh, a very progressive candidate in uh, New York State to medical marijuana in, in uh, uh, Oklahoma, I think it is, or Montana. And to uh, what may be the first, you know, gay, uh, openly gay uh, governor of Colorado, if Jared Polis wins. I mean, a lot of stuff going on there. And on top of that, we've got the Supreme Court uh, apparently dancing to the tune now of this in, uh, Illinois industrialist, Richard Euling. is it how it's pronounced? He's the yeah, guy who... Uline. Euline. okay. He's the guy who backs the Liberty Justice Center, which represents Mark Janis. Uh, uh, he sent out flyers back in 2016 to workers in Illinois, government workers in Illinois. Uh, saying that they shouldn't have to pay their fair share fee of standard union dues, et cetera. So anyhow, let me toss it to you.
5: Yeah, so yeah, it's a real mixed day, right? Um, lots going on. Uh, two Supreme Court decisions in two days that have been very negative, showing the power of uh, having uh, the Supreme Court and the power of the Senate in holding up an appointment for President Obama and then putting uh, Mr. Gorsuch in to uh, fill the court vacancy now, five, four decisions. Um, Janice, especially hard, as a union member for nearly three decades. Uh, and someone who's been through the Wisconsin experience attacking public employee unions, you know, this is uh, again out of their political playbook, as you mentioned, Uh, Richard Uline owns Uline, a shipping um, supply company, U L I N E, which I'll bet you a lot of your listeners may actually buy from. Uh, Every time they buy from them, um, the person who benefits is Richard Uline, who, as you mentioned, uses his money to destroy unions and to fund Republican candidates. I think he's put five or $6 million already in against Tammy Baldwin, our U S Senator from Wisconsin. So, Something people should definitely uh, keep in mind. Here's the kicker, Um, by the
4: way. In the New York Times, they're reporting on a study that was done some years ago where they found, and I quote, the Democratic share of the presidential vote dropped by an average of 3.5 percentage points state after state after the passage of so-called right-to-work laws.
5: Yeah. Well, and you're going to see people uh, unable to uh, have a collective voice in their workplace to talk about safety and working conditions, to talk about their wages and benefits at a time... Um, that uh, we have last year we had increases in union membership and polling among millennials shows some of the highest support for unions ever. So the the Supreme Court decision um, is counter to where America is at, where the American people are at, but certainly in line with uh, the billionaires like Dick Uline who helped fund these uh, efforts like the Janus case. So that's that's a really bad result. And then the Muslim ban um, being upheld yesterday was a really bad result of the courts. But as you mentioned, um, you know, uh, progressive seems to be doing well. Um, People are coming out to vote want to see change from the direction of this country, and the change they want to see is bold change, bold progressive change, which is something that we've been saying as the Progressive Caucus um, to our Democratic uh, leadership colleagues, that if we really want to be as effective as possible and win as many seats as possible, we better talk about big, bold, progressive ideas or else, you know, I I think one of the complaints out there is that, you know, you want to be just a little better. You want to be actually uh, improving people's lives in a substantive and noticeable way.
4: Yeah. And uh, our, our lines are filling up, so I just have one other quick question for you. It, it makes me crazy when I hear things that are simply not true said on television and nobody challenges it. Um, for example, yesterday, over and over, Trump said, you know, uh, Republicans want to secure the country. Democrats want open borders and more crime. Uh, there is no Democrat that I know of in the entire party who wants open borders or more crime. It's a simple lie. But nobody ever said, oh, the president's lying again. Uh, but it makes me even more crazy when the talent themselves... The, the uh, reporters and commentators uh, say these things this morning on uh, Stephanie Rule's program on MSNBC. She got into a conversation with two Republicans, or former Republicans, I guess, uh, Elise Jordan and Steve Schmidt, uh, and uh, about this young woman who, uh, I, uh, what, what's her name? I'm, I'm going to have to learn it here, uh, who just won in New, in New York, who beat Joe Crowley. Alexandria. Yeah, Alexandria. And uh, she said she's one of these far lefty. I'm paraphrasing here. She's one of those far lefties who wants to give people free education and free health care and, and free this and free that. And they have no plan to pay for it. And they all agreed. And, and she said, this is these are not progressives. These are lying progressives. And my recollection is that the Congressional Progressive Caucus year after year after year has produced a budget that actually does offer free education, free health care and does pay for it. Do I have that right with Stephanie Ruleful of whatever you want to call it this morning?
5: Yeah, and add on top of it, we actually also reduce uh, the deficit more than the Republicans and Democrats do in their versions of the budget. So we actually accomplish a whole lot in our version. And, uh, something you said, Tom, I really want to, you know, I just introduced a bill to um, uh, get rid of ICE, and uh, yeah, I've had a lot of sort of as you can imagine, speaking out. I was on Fox & Friends this morning, and uh, Brian on there put out some of that same misinformation. We don't care about the borders. ICE doesn't protect the borders. The Border Patrol does. We're not saying to go after the Border Patrol, but what ICE has been... Um, Become is the president's police force, where instead of you know, was created after 9/11, protecting us from terrorists. Now it's going and going after uh, you know doctors from Poland and Michigan, and going after people with parking tickets at churches and workplaces, so that uh, Donald Trump can justify his wall, so he can go to his rallies and get the adulation, admiration from uh, his uh, you know supporters, at least the the racist, uh, xenophobic element of his supporters. So, hmm. you know, you're right. They put a lot of misinformation out, and we're doing a lot to try to put the, the correct information out there.
4: Well, I didn't realize that there was that much of a separation between the Border Patrol and ICE. I thought they were, you know, basically different dimensions of the same entity.
5: No, that, that's the thing. I mean, ICE is it, the rest of the interior of the U.S., where they go after. Right. Uh, originally, again, it was done after 9-11. So the whole idea was to protect the country from terrorism. There's there other duties, human trafficking, you know, drugs, gangs, which also the FBI and the Department of Justice also do. So It's not like you're not going to have those functions. But the reality is, you know, uh, at the um, Head Start program in my district, in one of the cities in my district, uh, ICE was hanging out in the parking lot, scaring people away from having their kids get an education. Now, that is Donald Trump's vision of ICE, but it's not the American vision of ICE. He's so damaged the brand that ICE can no longer be effective in doing what they're doing. So, um, but again, so much misinformation. But They've got a hell of a lot of
4: money and a lot of guns. Absolutely. (laughs) Amazing. Okay, let's pick up some phone calls here. Stephen in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Stephen, you're on the air
3: with Congressman Pocan. Congressman Polkam, thank you for your time that you do every week for our uh, program here. Um, one of the questions I have for you is: This recent ruling by the Supreme Court of an unconcerning labor is this going to essentially make all of the states right-to-work states? Um, no. So
5: what the decision does specifically, it affects public employee unions. So you know, teachers, firefighters, um, public employees, uh, city, county, state uh, level. Um, what it's saying is. Uh, How they collect their dues and how they currently organize, Uh, they're not going to be able to to have someone pay dues uh, or pay a fee uh, to essentially still be represented by the union. So the union still has to represent these people, but they don't have to, they're not able to collect any fee for that. So basically people will be freeloading. So obviously more people will not pay uh, any dues or any fees whatsoever. The union still has to do the work to represent them. They're freeloaders, and that's going to hurt uh, the union and hurt their ability. And this
4: is every state in the country.
5: Every state in the country, and would exactly. this include police units? local unit of government. Pardon?
4: Would it also include police units, unions? It should be police
5: and fire. I believe is yeah. also included in this. Um, in fact, we're still kind of learning some aspects of it around retroactivity too, which could be very serious. So, um, but it affects public employee unions. So it doesn't affect private unions. You already have many states with right to work laws anyway, um, which again have been problems. But uh, this is why we have to have something like the Workplace Democracy Act, which I've introduced in the House with fifty-eight co-sponsors so far, and Senator Sanders is introduced in the Senate with about a dozen co-sponsors. Um, you know, this is a way to allow it so that a simple majority vote, you can have a union, uh, stops the delays in, in putting a union uh, together once you've won an election, gets rid of right-to-work laws in every single state in the country. Uh, that bill should be um, the goal, I think, for Democrats as we're moving
4: forward. Would that bill be, be considered unconstitutional under this ruling? Um, no, I don't
5: think so because, uh, again, how we're moving forward that we would get rid of the right-to-work laws We'll have to take a look at it, Tom. and that just came out. I think, again, legislatively, we would be able to put that in place. You could also Um, put a
4: court-stripping provision into it. You know, cite uh, Article 3, Section 2, where it says that uh, the Supreme Court is subject to uh, uh, congressional... I forget the word, but basically Congress can tell the Supreme Court what to do or not to do. And so you can put a a sentence into a bill that says the Supreme Court may not review this bill. You can forbid judicial review. In fact, uh, the last person to do that, I think, was Tom Udall. And... and, uh, or no, Tom. Uh, what's his name? Who used to be the uh, the, the head of the Senate? Um, you know, from uh, oh, the North Dakota. Um, I'm
5: sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, from yeah. Uh, yeah,
4: you know who I'm, I'm, I'm talking sorry, about. Yeah, anyway, yeah. yeah. So that's that's anyway. Let's get back to our callers. I'm sorry. I, I'm 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 <laughs> getting into these conversations. Uh, Andrew in New York City. You're on the air with Congressman Poe. Hi.
3: Thanks for taking my call. Um, I have a modest suggestion, or a possible suggestion. Uh, you can impeach people other than the president. Uh, How about Scott Pruitt? How about a privileged motion to impeach uh, Scott Pruitt for abuse of power and um, for uh, violating federal law? It probably won't get through, but it would make Republicans vote on whether they think Scott Pruitt should be removed from office. And it would create at least an interesting talking point uh, for progressive candidates.
5: Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, we already are making that point, especially around someone like Pruitt, who is so awful. Um, the problem is, again, uh, while we could get a vote that's going to go nowhere because we don't have the majority, I think we're trying to focus on November, where we can try to get the majority to pass some of these things. I don't think Republicans would join efforts to impeach any uh, of the administrative administration officials, uh, even someone like Pruitt or Betsy DeVos, who clearly um, is not competent to be the Secretary of Education. Uh, which is again why we're focused really on November. Um, we're certainly pointing out when you know Pruitt or, or DeVos or anyone does really uh, damaging things or really stupid things um, to try to make the point. But uh, you know, ultimately we have to have a majority if we're going to get this done because Republicans are refusing to join us on what would be otherwise reasonable votes like impeachment.
4: Yeah, it seems that uh, having that majority. I mean, I'm, I'm just looking at these progressive victories. I'm I'm encouraged, aren't you?
5: Oh, absolutely. I mean, the American people are where progressives are at, right? What we yeah. got to make sure is that, you know, as we elect a few more conservative Democrats, we don't let them claim we have to do everything they want because they happen to win a seat. Bottom line is the American people are with us and those progressive votes. they got those people across the finish line as well.
4: Right. Oh, Amen. Congressman Mark Pocan taking your calls for the hour. We'll be back with more of Middays with Mark here on the Tom Hartman Program. Stick around.
1: You're listening to the Tom Hartman
4: Program. Call 202-808-9925. You can check out Congressman Pocan's website at pocan.house.gov. You can tweet him at RepMarkPocan. Welcome back. It's Middays with Mark, Congressman Mark Pocan, taking your calls for the day. And Jerry in Tifton, Georgia, you are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Thanks for listening to Series X. Congressman Pocan. Yes.
2: Congressman Pocan. Hey, this
3: is Gary in Georgia, I retired from the auto industry 32 and a half years, uh, UAW member for most of that. I was a trained UAW organizer. I worked in two right-to-work states, Georgia and Tennessee. In my opinion, and some of my union brothers and sisters will disagree with that, especially if they've never worked in a right-to-work state, the most two most dangerous things about the right-to-work law is that the union has to represent people who don't pay dues, and if they don't, or the person feels they weren't represented to the same level, both the union and the union representative, as an individual, can be sued. In my opinion, uh, you won't have union members dropping out of the union and paying dues. If those two provisions, you could have a national right to work, and take those two provisions out of the law. Unions will, our unions will expand because they'll be they'll provide great service. As they already do to the members, and it'll kill the sting of the right to work laws from the right.
5: No, absolutely. In fact, um, what we've uh, seen in Wisconsin, uh, you know, and across the country really, when you have a right to work happen, uh, despite more states doing it, we've had increased union membership, right? So, for, in the other areas, because uh, people value what unions are doing. And, you know, this particular provision. It's really about freeloaders. It's people who don't want to pay anything in but get the benefit of the union but don't want to pay anything towards it because they're claiming it's going to go to a political purpose, which is absolute BS. But the courts uh, went that way in a 5-4 decision, in a very partisan decision, uh, which is great for all the billionaires and multimillionaires that uh, don't want to pay their workers well and don't want to worry about working conditions. In this particular case, it's public employees. But, you know, this is a, an attack over and over and over again until they get what they want across the country, which is bad news for working families.
4: Mary in Ore, California uh, Colorado, excuse me. Am I saying your town right? Mary?
1: Yes, it's Uray.
4: Uray, okay. You're on the air with Congressman pokin
1: Thank you. Uh back in two thousand and one, Dennis Kucinich introduced a bill to create a Department of Peace and followed with every year with that and then Mark uh, Dayton and uh wanted to make it a cabinet level position. Is there any chance the progressives could pick that up with all the money spent on the Defense Department? It would be a tiny fraction to have a department of peace at some kind of level. Maybe they have it now. I
2: don't think so.
5: I think most of our efforts, Mary, have been, you know, on trying to, like, when we put our Progressive Caucus budget out, we show that you can trim uh, spending on defense and invest it in things that actually benefit people across the country in a greater way. And by doing that, we're trying to show people that there are alternatives. Um, so rather than, you know, uh, a department and using that as the talking point, I think we've been trying to do it through budgetary ways because we show the direct relation to less spending on defense means more spending on education health um, healthcare uh, all the other areas that we'd like to highlight that people would say oh yeah that's a benefit that'll help me so the focus i think as of late has been on that uh, because it kind of goes a little stronger in that we still spend plenty on defense regardless but just by cutting back on some of that money uh, it's going to go to programs that people really value and i think it's a the best way right now that we have to illustrate uh, why we spend too much on defense and how we could cut back on some of the things we're doing.
4: I would also argue that the Department of State should be, the, you know, considered the Department of Peace. Essentially, the, I mean, the that state, di- That's right? the State Department's job is uh, diplomacy. Right. So, Michael, watching Free Speech TV in Imperial Beach, California, you are on the air with Congressman Mark
3: Pocan. Hey, Mr. Hartman, hey, uh, President Pocan. Uh, Representative Pocan, I was wondering, Bill Maher had a great thing on the other night. He said that the Republicans have the Koch brothers donating $400 million to campaigns. We have uh, Bezos, who's worth $141 billion, donating $250,000. We've got Bill Gates worked $94 billion, donating $250,000. I was wondering, Representative Pocan, I know that money is the game. Do you think we have enough Democratic billionaires to pull off this win in 2018 and 2020? Thank you, gentlemen.
5: Yeah, so I mean, I think, you know, a, a couple thoughts on this without going too long, but I, I think and we do have other folks that are helping out. The problem is I don't want to get into that escalating war of who's got more money, because let's face it, more um, billionaires are going to be Republicans. That's why they do these laws and these campaign finance changes to allow all this dark money in, and, and that's what we should be fighting. So let me just be very clear. But since we can't do that legislatively this year, we do have, I think Michael Bloomberg just said he's going to put in $80 million towards um, congressional, Democratic congressional candidates uh, because he knows that that's the place we can put a goalie in place. So there are plenty of efforts, but I, I hate to make this equation that you know whoever's got the most money is going to be the way uh, you win elections because, you know as we saw yesterday, um, someone who's outspent 11 to 1 uh, beat an incumbent, uh, there are certainly other ways we should also be campaigning and organizing around getting out the vote, which is just as important.
4: Yeah. Congressman, we just have 40 seconds to the break. You, you were on Fox & Friends this morning talking about the difference between ICE and uh, the Border Patrol. Border Patrol, yeah. The, yeah I mean, are we, they we, under separate agencies, or are they both part of the same agency, uh, Homeland Security? I guess they would be. Um,
5: I, I believe they're under the same overall agency, but ICE is about a $7 billion agency on its own. Um, that again, you know, essentially goes after the interior portion. So no one is talking about open borders, as you said. Um, that's not what the debate is about. Yet they keep making it that. They keep saying it's about criminals coming in, and yet I think there's been 200 and the 28 uh, MS-13 people out of 300,000. Uh, so you know, clearly they just keep putting out these giant lies uh, in order to justify what they're doing, just keeping their a racist base, um, parts of their base happy, and uh, it's just. Yeah, for all the wrong reasons,
4: it really is very un-American. Yeah, amen. We'll be back with more of your questions for Congressman Mark Pocan right after this. Hey, do you brush with an electric toothbrush, or have you wanted to? If you're using one of the one of the older, bigger, bulkier, you know, and some of them you know are so aggressive they can even damage your mouth. Uh, tooth electric toothbrushes, uh, or if you've never. Th- used an electric toothbrush. I want you to pay attention. There's a new electric toothbrush. Time Magazine called it the invention of the year, right? Uh, it's called Quip, Q-U-I-P. It's slim, it's lightweight, it's about the size of a regular toothbrush. It's got a, you know, a little AAA battery inside that powers it, and powers it for months at a time uh, be, between changes. And it, it does a really great job. It aggressively cleans your teeth, but it does so in a way that's good for your gums and good for your teeth. It's a the perfect two-minute clean. So check this thing out, and it's great for traveling. It comes with a little tube that you can drop it in to travel because, like I said, it's about the size of a regular toothbrush, much much smaller than your than your big electric toothbrushes, and you can find out all about it at getquip.com/tom. That's g-e-t getquip q-u-i-p dot com slash t-h-o-m getquip.com/tom. For more information, it's only 25 bucks, and they send you the refills, the, the brush heads that you're supposed to replace every three months. Every three months, they'll send those to you for only $5 free shipping. It's an amazing deal. Getquip.com Tom.
3: Back to
4: our program. On the line with us, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, the Chief of Staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell, the Distinguished Adjunct Professor of Government and Public Policy at the College of William and Mary. And uh, uh, Colonel Wilkerson, uh, welcome back to the program. It's been a long time since we've talked. It's great to have you with us.
1: It has been a while. (laughs) I, I, I caught
4: the other day a comment that you made about don't trust... Donald Trump on on creating peace with North Korea. And uh, I, I wanted to dig into that a little bit and also just you know generally get your perspective on what's going on in our country right now. Uh, you've You've uh, observed the the United States as a military man, as, a, as an intelligence officer, as a, as the uh, number two guy in the State Department, or the chief of Staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell, um, a, and now as a professor of public policy. Uh, where would you prefer to start?
3: <laughs> you take your pick.
4: Okay, well, let's start out with North Korea. Your thoughts on what's going on there.
1: I would be the last person to disparage anyone of whatever ilk seeking peace on the Korean Peninsula where I've been involved for 40 years. Um, however, this team disturbs me, first of all, by its bombast and its arrogance at the start, which was not what got Kim, Kim Jong-un to come to the, negotiation, the negotiating table, as it were. What got him to come was the fact that He studied exactly what his father, Kim Jong-il, did, and at the end of Kim Il-sung's reign, what his grandfather did. And that is to sucker the United States as much as is possible into giving him as much as he can get for as little he will return. And this is a script I've followed with three different leaders. It's a script I've followed on the peninsula, off the peninsula. And while we came very close at the end of the Clinton administration, even gave Kim Dae Jung, the South Korean president, the Nobel Peace Prize for bringing peace to the peninsula in his sunshine policy. And we came uh, remarkably close, though most don't know it, in the Bush administration when we finally realized that the procedures the Clinton administration had used to gain the agreed framework were pretty sound and adopted them, but too late because the North Koreans had already begun building nuclear weapons. I don't think this administration has the skill to bring this off, and I see Kim Jong-un gaining as much as he possibly can, and then cutting everything off. And with John Bolton there beside Trump, it worries me that when he cuts everything off, uh, retreats to China, if you will, uh, we're going to have a worse situation than we had uh, when the bombast was going on, and maybe even more. So that how, worries me.
4: How does? How might that play out? I mean, do, do we just revert to the mean? We just go back to, you know, hey, high tensions and, and we're yelling at each other? Or, or do you think the, a, the failure of this process, particularly when Donald Trump has invested so much of his ego into it, which seems to be the most precious commodity on earth to him, uh, that uh, he might react in a way that uh, would produce possibly even war?
1: You put your finger right on it. You put your finger on it better than I could. Um, this narcissist this egomaniac, this reality TV, TV star whom thirty-some percent of the American people put in the White House um, it worries me more than anybody else except maybe for John Bolton John Bolton would love to have war on the peninsula he doesn't care about the casualties that were produce. he just wants the war and he
4: went out of his way to avoid the Vietnam War
1: yeah well that that's the neocons
4: yeah as did Trump up. I guess
1: yeah they're willing to die to the last person who will go for them to die Um, And and this combination of mercurial, narcissistic character in the president and this very hardcore and accomplished guy in terms of getting things done, most of the neocons are, worries me when we get to the end of the road. And as you said eloquently, uh, Trump is presented with a real colossal failure and has to do something about it. Yeah,
4: yeah, that that could be very, very problematic. We're seeing an absolute mess in Syria right now or at least it looks that way, we're seeing Yemen now in a, uh, a massive humanitarian crisis, 8 million people on the verge of starvation, uh, as, as a consequence of uh, our support of the Saudi policies there, uh, you could argue, or, or the Saudis would argue, as a result of the Houthi rebellion. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm seeing, you know, uh, flare, you know, the problem with Iran, you know, pulling out of the Iran deal. Where do you see geopolitically, where do you see the real problem areas, and what are the policies that we're engaging in that might be helpful or that are, frankly, harmful?
1: Well, let's take that one, Uh, the Yemen problem. I've been on the Hill for several weeks with H. Conrad's 81 and Senate Special Resolution 54. We got a 54 to 44 vote on that, scared to be Jesus out of Mitch McConnell. He never thought the vote would be that close. And all that was for was to get the United States out of an unconstitutional war. There is no congressional authorization per the Constitution and the War Powers Act for U.S. support for Saudi Arabia, UAE, and the others in the coalition in Yemen. And it's a brutal war, as you pointed out. I think the number one problem the United States has right now with regard to national security, and there are so many problems that I could talk forever on it, is the war power and the abuse thereof by the executive branch. We are now counting the no-fly zones in north and south of Iraq from the end of the first Gulf War on. We are 26 years of straight war with no end in sight. The military-industrial complex salivates every day, Raytheon, every time a cruise missile is fired. Raytheon stocks go up. Lockheed stocks go up. We're selling airplanes everywhere. We're selling billions of dollars to the greatest state sponsor of terrorism in the world, Saudi Arabia, under the boy king, Mohammed bin Salman, whose war this is in Yemen, which incidentally, Tom, the Saudis and the coalition are losing. They're losing badly, and we're supporting them. And it's a brutal war, and it's a horrible humanitarian disaster. This is the biggest problem we have right now. We cannot turn off the executive-initiated war machine. We have a wholly owned subsidiary of the executive branch in the Congress of the United States.
4: Do you think? Do you, what role do you think that the enormous amount of sucking up to Donald Trump the Saudis did? You know, lining the parade route with TV screens of his picture on them, projecting his picture giant on the sides of buildings. You know, it was just all Donald all the time. We love you. We love you. Uh, I think that was his first overseas trip too. To what extent do you think that that is what led to this policy, or was this just something that you know the a Republican-led Congress? Uh, and a Republican president would typically go along with.
1: Well, I don't want to just blame the Republicans, though they're massively guilty. I want to blame the Democrats, too. I talked to Democratic senators and representatives, too, and you wouldn't believe some of the answers I got. <laughs> they simply do not want to challenge Saudi Arabia. Too much money in U.S. banks, too oh much investment in the United States, too big an arms buyer offsetting our having to pay for other things like Chinese production uh the The fear in Congress, the abject fear of saudi arabia this this country from whom fifteen of the hijackers came from uh, that uh, perpetrated the tragedy on nine eleven this country keeps our country almost as in basement as does israel and Now that Israel and Saudi Arabia are in a tacit alliance, an alliance of convenience, but nonetheless an alliance it 's even worse
4: hmm. so uh what do we do about this?
1: I've been asking myself that question and asking the few congressmen and senators who care that question for about six weeks now. Uh, this is a huge problem. We did get close on the vote, but getting the Congress to exercise its constitutional power with regard to the executive's ability to make war anywhere and anytime is a, is the challenge right now, immediate challenge, tactical challenge, if you will. There are a lot of other bigger ones, China, climate change, and so forth, but this one, if we don't do something about this, uh, Tom, we are approaching 21 trillion dollars in gross debt that's reflected in and much worse reflected in the fact that we are going to start the year after next or the next cbo's report shows this clearly paying interest payments on that debt that equal or surpass the defense budget that same report says by 2028 2029 which is not very far away We are going to have no discretionary spending left in the federal budget because of the rise in the interest rates and the rise in our interest payments on that debt. Now, you can't ignore that like we ignore the 2021 trillion gross debt. You've got to pay that every year or you default and everything starts collapsing. So we're in a fiscal situation right now, largely because of the uh, inability of the government to run this country well and the wars that we need to get out of or we're going to see ourselves chasing China down a rat hole.
4: And yet, at the end of the Clinton administration, we had a one point two trillion dollar budget surplus. At the end of the Carter administration, we had a balanced budget um, i, 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 I don 't want
1: to ask and this you is Republicans this is Republicans. I will say that people like Chuck Schumer and Stenie Hoyer and others are right there with them. Uh, Thornberry at the House Armed Services Committee, Royce at the house international affairs committee they 're all right there with them. Oh, give them another billion dollars, Give them another eighty billion dollars. Give them another ninety billion. You know for the rise in the defense budget that we just uh, orchestrated looks like it's going to pass. You could have sent every child in America for the next two times to a four-year university, and you could have paid for it. Wow! That's how much we upped the defense budget, and for what purpose? It's more than we ever had during any annual period during the Cold War, when we really did have an enemy. What purpose are we spending this money on? Yeah,
4: that's remarkable. Uh, Colonel, we're talking with Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. We're going to hit a hard break in about a minute and a half, a little less than a minute and a half. Very quickly, I'm curious, you, you worked in the, in the Bush administration. Um, you knew a lot of these political uh, folks. Uh, do, are you still in communication with them? And what's the broad uh, opinion of, of uh, the, the people that you know, uh, you don't have to name names if you don't want to, uh, of the Trump administration?
1: The ones I'm still in touch with are the ones I still have respect for and value their opinions, um, Republicans and Democrats and independents, and the ones who are still in the government, uh, like the one I talked to last night, for example, in the Pentagon, are frightened. They, uh, w- one, they don't know how to get out of where they are. Two, if they're professionals like this individual was, they're very frightened of the political appointees. And I, you know, one wonders if Trump has any knowledge of who he's actually appointing, because most presidents don't down at this level. But the trend in these political appointees is arrogance, narcissism not unlike Trump's, religiosity like Pence's, and utter ignorance about international affairs and security policy in general. And so they're scared. They're frightened. This, this particular individual said so when Mattis leaves, he's a canary in the coal mine. You've seen the reporting, I'm sure, about yes. possible friction between Trump and Mattis. Well, I've said all along, when Jim leaves, uh, you've got no check left. And Bolton would probably be the precipitate cause of Jim leaving. So you're just looking at a worsening situation. And if Mattis leaves, there'll be no calm head left there to, you know, kind of check things. Remarkable,
4: uh, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, sir, uh, you are a a true patriot. Thank you so much for dropping by the program. Thanks for having me. Great talking with you. We'll be back with uh, more of the news of the day and your calls in just a few minutes. It's uh, 18 minutes past the hour. Welcome back to the Tom Hartman program. On the line with us is Professor Richard Wolf, the economist, co founder of Democracy at Work, author most recently of Capitalism's Crisis Deepens Essays on the Global Economic Meltdown. His website, democracyatwork.info, and rdwolf with two F's.com. You can tweet him at profwolf with two F's. And uh, Professor Wolf, welcome back to the program.
0: Thank you, Tom. Glad to
4: be here. As we're seeing all these progressive victories, genuine progressive victories like we saw yesterday in New York uh, State and, uh, frankly, all around the country, uh, uh, I'm I'm curious your thoughts on what the uh, kind of the institutional holder at the moment of uh, with with some actual modicum of power, uh, the institutional holder of, of the progressive movement, the Democratic Party, uh, you know, the uh, I think virtually all the members of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, for example, are members of the Democratic Party. Um, none of them are Republicans, obviously. Uh, what should be the policy, uh, policy agenda of this new progressive wave that seems to be, you know, even a larger sweep than the Democratic Party itself?
0: Well, you would hope, even though I think I'm afraid that what I'm about to say is not the case, but you would hope that they could see what seems to me to be the writing on the wall that the country is more and more splitting into halves, uh, alternative or hostile to one another, and an increasingly acrimonious kind of uh, uh, state of our communications, and that the the mass of people who were disaffected by the last 30 years of our economic system uh, are basically choosing between a right-wing expression, if you like, of that perspective, which supports Trump, And whatever else you want to call it, Bernie Sanders' movement or the progressive or more progressive wing, uh, that seems to me to be literally proceeding. I don't find that surprising since the growing inequality of the United States uh, that I think is the root cause of why Trump was elected has only gotten worse since his election. Therefore, the, the driver, if you like, of what's happening continues. And my fear, though, is, and why I'm a little negative in this moment is that i don't see the signs that the established democratic party has any understanding or any intention of accommodating um, what's happening it, it seems to be doubling down uh... in the hope that mr trump will implode on himself and everybody will then turn to them uh... and my guess is they're going to be badly disappointed in that expectation
4: Yeah. well we're seeing i mean you know, you're you even seeing a challenge to the governor of new york state who uh, is about as burrowed into the Democratic establishment, as you can get, whether Cynthia Nixon will succeed in bumping him out or not. uh, You live in New York State. You probably have a better analysis of that than I do. Uh, But
0: I I can tell you an interesting thing, which is Mr. Cuomo continuously acted until very recently as though um, he were the elephant and Cynthia Nixon was a mosquito, and he wasn't going to be irritated, even in the slightest degree, by this uh, very dismissive, all of that changed, I think, about a month, a month and a half ago, and now Mr. Cuomo is suddenly sprouting progressive sorts of wings, is uh, out there uh, denouncing Trump with a, with a gusto that he didn't manage to generate in the a- earlier time. Uh, he's, he's running a little bit nervous. I mean, the, he does have the machine. Uh, the same people who once uh, said very loudly that there's a special place in that uh, hot place down below... any woman who votes, uh, who doesn't vote for a woman candidate, have found their way to uh, ignore their own advice when it comes to Cynthia Nixon and Andrew Cuomo. Uh, One could say a lot about those things, but the machine wants him, he wants the machine, and that's, that's their commitment. They're going to get the office because they live in a world where the last 50 years of a polite handing over of power from the Democrats to the Republicans and vice versa was the only thing that politics meant, and they want that to continue, and therefore they become blind to the, both the underlying forces and the political expression of those forces that show up in, in Trump, in Bernie, and now in these results.
4: Yeah. I'm, I'm seeing increasingly in uh, financial blogs and newsletters and whatnot uh, concern about the, uh, the flattening of the yield curve, the difference between what we pay for long-term, say 10-year treasuries. And what we pay for short-term treasuries, you know, uh, six-month treasuries or one-year treasuries, and and of course, in historically, you pay, you know, the, or the Treasury Department would pay us if we bought these treasury bills, uh, pay more for the for the long-term ones than the short-term ones because when you buy a long-term one, you're tying your money up for ten years, and so you know if the economy gets really really great and interest rates go up, you're in, in trouble, you know, so you get at this premium. And as that premium collapses for a bunch of different reasons, and maybe you could articulate some of those, um, uh, with one single exception, ever since the w- the end of World War II, every time the yield curve has inverted—that is, the ten-year treasuries have gotten cheaper than um, than short treasuries—it uh, has it has heralded a major recession. It happened before 2000. It happened in 27, 2007. 2007. Um, it happened in '87 in the, the big crash on Reagan. I mean, you know, over and over again. Um, what are your thoughts on this? What is causing this and, and to what extent is this a, an indication of the limits of the Fed's ability to, uh, to, to, to keep the bailing wire and bubble gum in place to, to hold this economy together?
0: Well, I think the key answer is, is to pick up from the very last thing you said. The larger historical situation is, and this I think is, is, is at the root of much of what goes on in the United States politically these days, we are in a period when the american dominance of the of the global economy which is about a hundred years old it really came into its own after world war one is fading and you can dance and you can jump up and down and you can tell yourself every story you want but that's the underlying reality the europeans have recovered from two world wars the chinese are the star story of the last 40 years Uh, the rest of the world is is arriving if you like into a modern economic role to play And the United States, whether it's the Federal Reserve or the president or the Congress, has to face, even though they do everything on earth to avoid it, that they are no longer in a position to control the situation the way they once were. And nothing illustrates it more than what we call hot money in the global finance business. That is flows of money that move between long and short-term investments, but also move from one currency to another, from one society to another, Uh, And that money is now enormous, and it is very quick to adjust to anything it sees, either as an opportunity or as a threat. And the inversion of the yield curve this this phenomena where the normal distinctions between long and short-term debt are eviscerated. That's a sign of a massive amount of anxiety, of volatility, of uncertainty. Nobody quite knows whether Mr. Trump is actually going to be able to Uh, and willing to push through a genuine trade war. Uh, and, And even if you think you know the answer to that question, you then have to ask the next one. What will be the retaliations around the world? How will that affect world trade? And anything that affects world trade on that scale will affect the flows of money and all the anxieties of the people in charge of it. And that's really what you're seeing. You're seeing it's a little bit like recognizing that all the anomalous weather we see around us Uh, Is a sign of global warming. Well, all the anomalous economic signs are a sign of very profound changes that are going to shape the world in the in the century to come. But we live in a country which, because of its peculiar politics, seems unable or unwilling to even talk about these things in a systematic way. So, for example, economists like me, I, I scour the financial press to see what the hedge fund guys are, are thinking and doing and this morning's headline was a wonderful example two or three of the leading hedge fund managers in this country who have long-standing superb reputations are out this morning a bloomberg report saying that um, they think the american economy is in a terrible situation with a crisis literally around the corner that doesn't mean that that's true and it doesn't mean that they have crystal balls but it's a sign that everybody who follows this stuff closely is aware of the enormous historical shifts going on, whereas we live in a world of media and academia and politicians who seem to want to lull us into a notion that none of this is something anyone needs to worry about.
4: Yeah, and this is not a healthy thing. No, it's have very, uh, very dangerous We have about 30 seconds, sir, until we're going to hit a hard break here. Uh, Your thoughts on what people should be paying attention to in the next
0: week? I think they ought to pay a great deal of attention to the response of the Chinese government and of the Europeans to what Mr. Trump is seeming to be determined to do. They will retaliate in all likelihood, and how hard they retaliate will mean how many Americans suffer from what Mr. Trump is doing. That could destroy the base of his support, or it could make it go even more extreme as they try to cope with something they weren't prepared to go through.
4: Yeah. This is going to be a very interesting, very uh, stuff. yeah, and a wild ride, Professor Richard Wolf. It's always great talking with you. Thank you so much for being with us, Doctor. Thank Wolf.
0: you, Tom. Glad to do it. Take great, care.
4: great speaking with you. You know, in the world of work, one of the most important things is one of the things that people probably think the least about until they have to sit in it, which is their chair. And the X chair is absolutely extraordinary. This is the new high-tech. In fact, they've got a brand new version. It's called the X3, the newest version of the X chair. It is comfortable. It is high-tech. And yes, I'll say it, it is sexy. This chair is extraordinary and it will dramatically, consequentially improve your concentration and productivity because it's going to help your posture. And you know, if you're not in pain and and your blood is working, you know, flowing well, your brain is going to work well. The new X3 is, quite simply, the most modern, ergonomic, high-tech, comfortable office chair in the world, period. The X3's unique ATR fabric makes it feel like you're literally floating on air. And it's patented, split-back, lumbar technology provides a cradling, customized feel that has to be experienced to believe. You need to see and feel the X3 for yourself. Go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to check out the X3's Perfect blend of design and ergonomics. There's a lot of people, you know, checking these out and going for these chairs. Supplies are limited, so don't wait. Order at xchairtom.com. And if you do it now, you get $100 off. That's xchairtom.com, or you can call them at 1 844 4xchair. This chair comes with a 30 day, no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. That's how good it is. Go to xchairtom.com. Right now, use the code TOM T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. XChairTom.com. Now back to the podcast.
1: This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome
4: back. Tom Hartman here with you on the line with us is Dr. Henry Oster. Uh, am I, uh, sir, am I saying that right? Is it Oster or Oster?
2: Oh, anywhere you want, but
4: Oster would be better. Oster, okay, thank you. You—he is the sole survivor of the Holocaust from Cologne, Germany, or Cologne, Germany. He has a new book out. It's called "The Kindness of the Hangman." Uh, at the age of eighty-nine, now, do I have that right, sir? You have that
3: right, absolutely.
4: This is remarkable. You were—you were five years old when the Nazis came to power in Germany, and you were sixteen when Hitler was defeated. Uh, from the notes I have, and from from reading through your book. Uh, that was in 1933 when the Nazis came to power. You escaped a firing squad in Auschwitz. You came within hours of starving to death before you were liberated by General Patton's Third Army. Um, what lessons... Well, first of all, welcome to our program. I'm so glad to have you with us, sir.
2: It's an honor to be on your program, Tom. I really appreciate it.
4: Thank you. It's a, it's a remarkable book. The, the subtitle, in fact, The Kindness of the Hangman is the title. The subtitle is Even in Hell, There is Hope. Um, a true german, german uh, young german boy's true story of tragedy and triumph from the depths of despair in Auschwitz and Buchenwald to an extraordinary life in America uh, uh Henry or Mr Mr Oster you no,
2: no 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 Henry Henry
4: Okay Henry you have seen the 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 worst of humanity the absolute worst of humanity and there are comparisons being made today by by some you know including myself from time to time uh, between the the loss of democratic institutions in the United States and the rise of fascism in Germany and hit Italy and Spain uh, other countries around the world I'm curious your thoughts on that
2: well first of all uh, I believe that currently the last um, well shall we say two years we have seen duplication replica of the events that I had witnessed endured, and do it survived I am uh, so Americanized that I'm devastated with the events that we are viewing and experiencing right now. Uh, very disappointing and very discouraging to see that. I actually see uh, the duplication of German propaganda uh, maneuvers, techniques, and obviously uh, the unfortunate uh, uh, not to see the condemnation of these things. So- to I... live in America and see something I've seen before, to say the least, is disturbing, especially since it seems to have a considerable support. The Germans, of course, went the whole, the whole history as a, an agreement to Hitler's plans and the Nazi philosophy, if you can call it. Here we see uh, examples of it, and yet we find ourselves uh, more or less powerless to change. So it is nothing brand new. Uh, it is something in the propaganda. The promises uh, Hitler said Germany will rise again. Here we see America great again. These are by words different, but the intent seems to be pretty much other fascist the fascism uh, replication of the past.
4: I read uh, Milton Mayer's book. He was an American journalist who in the uh very late forties, I believe, or maybe even the early fifties, went over to Germany, spent a year there, uh, interviewed at, at length, 10 Germans who were not, uh, part of the Nazi movement and were not the victims of the Nazi movement. They just had jobs and they worked all through the, everything, right? College professor, a bricklayer, a baker, you know, just average people right. and said, you know, what was going on? And almost to a man, what they said was, uh, number one, there were so many things happening so fast. Literally every day, the news cycle was being inundated with with oh, the Nazis just did this. Hitler just did that. Hitler says this. Everybody should do that. Um, and and some actual genuine positive reforms. You know, we're going to build the autobahn. Um, other things. Oh, we regret that we're going to have to. You know, we're going to have to do this to the trade unionists. Um, uh, number one. Number two, the big lie strategy these people reported, you know, the, 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 these enormous lies, you know, uh, the, the, you know, one of the most horrific, obviously, the, uh, about the Jews. Um, were told and repeated over and over and over again to the point that they became conventional wisdom, and, and 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 number three that that the administration of the German government at the time had become so incestuous, essentially so inward-looking that either you were with the cult or you were against the cult, and there was no middle ground. Um, is that an accurate depiction of what you experienced growing up in Germany? Uh, you know, from the, the the from the time when Hitler came to power in 1933 until he was kicked out 12 years
2: later. That is absolutely correct. Well, first of all, there were only, in 1933, 600,000 Jews in all of Germany in a population of 60 million. And with the indoctrination from childhood on, at least in, since 1933, with Hitler used that they were superior, that they were above everybody else, and everybody else designated as subhuman, were exactly subhuman, they ate it up. They were actually convinced of that.
4: The Germans um, thought that they thing, were the master race. every
2: German was a Nazi. There were only 8 million party members. But the doctrines that the Nazi had was readily accepted by the whole population and enthusiastically supported. Now, the idea of uh, eliminating Jews became a minor thing after all. we only 1% of the population. But one reason that Germans went for it, even those that were not entirely supportive of uh, Hitler was the threat of concentration camp. After the war, everybody said, oh, we we had no idea. Of course they did. You had Gestapo, which would be the equivalent to FBI in our country, in every certain area of each city, and they walked around in the leather coats, intimidating the population that if you don't adhere to what the Nazis and our party is doing, daddy will probably disappear at least three days confinement in the Gestapo headquarters, or if it was something more contrived or imaginary violation, they would end up in the concentration camp. Because if you ask neighbors for any assistance, they always told you, well, we don't want to end up in a concentration camp. And after the war, they all said, well, we didn't know anything about it. These were absolutely, in, in, with no doubt about it, untrue the basic denials, if not lies. And so Germany went that... They love uniforms and flags. One of the things why somebody we know here wants to have a parade. I never use our president's name, by the way. I think people know that. He wants to have a parade which the Germans were famous for. He didn't object to the parade of neo-Nazis in Charlesville. The thing is there are permissions, a permissive attitude of our government that will encourage people like the Nazis to become encouraged here to have certainly un-American ideas, un-American uh, convictions, and actually un-American deeds that are such as uncommon for us. Now, admittedly, and unfortunately, uh, in World War II, we had America first, also restricting um, immigration and not letting refugees from Europe come into this country. So uh, Mr. president probably thinks he can repeat it this time, especially for whatever reason he proposes it appeals to a segment of our population and they should also and definitely be ashamed of it.
4: We're talking to Henry Hoster, the author of the Kindness of the hangman at 89 years old, the last surviving uh, citizen of Cologne Germany uh, who survived the Holocaust. Uh, Henry, how did how did you end up in Auschwitz and and Buchenwald?
2: Well first of all uh, that was, kind of automatic. The, uh, there were 2011 Jews from the city of Cologne. And by the way, only 23 survived the war. All were killed. And it was in 2011 that I was notified and discovered to be the last surviving uh, uh, of these 2011. People were taken forcefully, uh, put on, on trains, and sent, in this case, my family to a ghetto. A ghetto, the the Warsaw Ghetto, and ours was a large ghetto, were parts of the city dilapidated run down where they cramped as many Jews as possible, like a holding pallet, like some place that they will hold them and gradually send them out by nightly daylight raids, put them on trucks, and simply send them to Auschwitz. There were six various facilities around the major uh, cities of Poland a primary opponent, because when they started World War II, the Germans inherited three million Polish Jews. And how are you going to get rid of them? Only by German efficiency, I guess. They built facilities that were called extermination camps. These were camps where you arrived and you died. There were no overnight facilities to have anybody stayed for one night even. So when they actually took the concentration camp idea, and converted to extermination camp, and Germany had over 2,000 concentration camps, but there were these six facilities in Poland just for killing. They gradually took people from the ghettos and from something directly from Germany or prisoners of war and sent them to these camps. In this particular case, my dad had already died of starvation in the ghetto. My mom and I were caught, put on train, and sent to Auschwitz. Now, Auschwitz, just for a little accuracy, is a huge complex. All the German factories, uh, the uh, machinery, the chemicals, uh, uh, everything was produced there. And Auschwitz was considered to be the labor f- to supply these people for forced labor. The second and most important and the most deadly part of Auschwitz was Birkenau, a mile and a half away. That. Immolation facility of Auschwitz. Right. We were selected. H- Henry, if, if, if I may,
4: I, I, I'm sorry. We're, we're hitting a, a hard break here. I can't control it. Can you stick around with us for for, for this half hour, for another 15 as minutes? As
2: long as you need me.
4: Wonderful. We're talking with Henry Oster. His new book, The Kindness of the Hangman. At 89 years old, Henry Oster is the old is the last surviving member of the uh, the last survivor. Excuse me, of the Holocaust from Cologne, from Cologne, Germany. We'll be back with uh, Henry Oster in just a minute.
1: This is the Tom Hartman Program.
4: Henry Oster escaped a firing squad in Auschwitz and came within hours of starving to death before liberation by Patton's Third Army. We'll be back with him. Welcome back. Henry Oster is with us. He is the, uh, uh, the uh, last survivor of uh, the Holocaust from Cologne, Cologne, Germany. He was uh, five years old when Hitler came to power in 1933. Uh, He was uh, 16 years old when Hitler was defeated. He's 89 years old now. Uh, He escaped the firing squad in Auschwitz. He was uh, nearly starved to death. Uh, Patton liberated him. Uh, Henry, you were talking very eloquently and and, and by the way, we, we only have about three minutes left here. You were talking very eloquently about um, the, the, the camps and, and that you were taken to and how many of them were you know, not specifically death camps. Um, do you, do, as, 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 as Donald Trump is building these uh, uh, detention facilities, 30,000, 40,000 person detention facilities on military bases around the United States, uh, is it an exaggeration? Is it hysteria to say that there's some parallel?
2: Uh, it's a little bit more than a parallel because while the intention is obviously not to kill children, but the pain, the agony, and, and the damage it's in memories to be ripped away from your parents, kept literally in uh, cage like structures, fences surrounding that couldn't even climb over it, and being treated in a number of ways, not all of them being favorable. It does damage your psyche, it does damage your memory. Because nobody, nobody wants to be torn away. The most painful memory of my experience was when I did arrive in Birkenau. my mother was torn away and died the same day that she arrived. And I can sympathize and feel and certainly identify myself with children that have to go through the same thing right now. Not that the parents will be killed, but absence is absence. Yeah. If they're not there, you're going to be painfully reminded that you lost your parents and you have no idea when and if they will be reunited. It's an, a painful experience, whether it's in war and peace, but certainly has no business in a country like ours. Yeah. Our... And that's why, if I may, I have, uh, I will, if you see the picture, what I think is the most dramatic and I think should be a prize winning cover of Time magazine, this is the example of pain at its utmost. This is the agony of a child looking up at the worst image. It will be a memory, a reminder for the rest of a little boy's or little girl's life. It cannot be eradicated.
4: We have just a little less than a minute. You came to the United States with no English, no money, no education. Uh, what are your thoughts on the way that uh, this administration is treating immigrants and refugees? Well,
2: first of all, uh, you know. Number one, the discouraging aspect of having immigrants come here to begin with is, is shameful. Europe and European countries put us to shame. We're laughing stuck at in international relations or recognition. We're no longer the leader of uh, the world. We're just uh, come-along-and-go-along-and-poorly at that. The fact that we are a country based on immigrants, started by immigrants, created by immigrants and supported, we used to have welcome at our. And I am afraid that the flame of liberty, of freedom and justice and whatever it promises, is gradually being extinguished. And I sure as hell don't want to see the arm come down horizontally with a post, get out and stay out. And that, I think, is what we're getting to and allowing to get it to. And it is not what I think America stands for.
4: Amen. Dr., excuse me, Henry Oster, the author of The Kindness of the Hangman. Hang on just a second, sir. The Tom Hartman program. Call 202 808 9925. The website is thekindnessofthehangman.com. Henry, thank you so much for being with us.
2: My pleasure and honor. Thank you, Tom.
4: Thank you, sir. Welcome back, Dave, in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's up?
3: Yeah, hey, Tom, that, that uh, news about the Supreme Court is really bad. About the only thing more important to an autocrat than controlling the military is controlling the courts. But that's not what I called. I wanted to get your take on Germany. I wanted to get your take on uh, Trump's ambassador to Germany, Richard Grinnell, yeah. openly saying he is going to support the Alternative or Deutschland party. Now, I'm not trying to say they're fascist. They are fascist. Remember? Well, okay. And then remember <laughs> I mean, how important Dodd They embrace William fascism. Dodd,
4: they don't embrace Hitlerism, but they embrace fascism, at least from what I know about them. Yeah. It's a nationalist party.
3: Right. And then they're very anti-immigrant and everything. And, and remember how pivotal William Dodd was, you know, uh, Roosevelt's ambassador to Germany. Remember how he mm-hmm. said, look, this stuff going on in Germany is not normal. You know, he was very imp- influential in that. He was very outspoken and, about uh, it. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Yes. Uh, Dave, I, I, I agree. I think Richard Grinnell is, uh, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a right-wing hack, and, and uh, Trump made him ambassador to Germany, and now the Germans are just, you know, flipped out about it. So, uh, you know, we'll see where it goes. Thanks for the call, Dave.
3: Donald in Aurora, Illinois. Hey, Donald, what's up? Hi, Tom. Quickly, you know, they, this business about having 15, uh, 16-year-olds and even 14-year-olds vote is crazy. I don't know they anybody would've...
4: who's advocating 14-year-olds. I've heard of 16-year-olds, you know, lowering the voting my... age to 16. Okay.
3: The thing is, even that's crazy. I was, I was raised a Republican because my family all voted Republican, and it's almost like being raised as a Catholic. They would be highly influenced by their, by their uh, parents, like I was. I didn't vote to a Democrat until after I voted for Richard Nixon. He was the last yeah. Republican. Donald, I think so that's,
4: that's much more true of people of of um, I'm not sure how old you are, of but of my generation, kids who grew up, you know, with their only information source being one local newspaper and three TV channels. I think that's absolutely true. That's it's why I followed my father into the Republican Party when I was 13. It, it well, wasn't until I was years 15 that I broke I got
3: out of it during the Vietnam War, and that's why I. I, uh, I voted for Nixon because I thought he ended it. But he don't you think that, right that the 16
4: year olds today with all the social media and everything are much more well informed? I mean, look at what these Parkland kids are doing? Yeah. I, I suspect that they have that, that to be 16 years old in today's world, is a completely different thing than to be 16 year old, years old was in the 60s, 70s, even the 80s and 90s, and and as such, I I, I personally think they're more well informed. But it's a it's a reasonable debate, Donald, and one we should have someday. But today, you know, it's, it's not the topic for the for the debate. So thank you for the call, uh, Maurice, in East Dublin, Georgia. You have the last minute of the show, Maurice. What's up?
3: Well, thank you, and I'll use it hopefully efficiently. Uh, What has happened and
1: what I demand of the Democratic Party establishment at this point is to pack the courts in 20 when there's a Democratic president and a Democratic-led Senate. They have no excuses now.
3: Obviously, McConnell has flouted all rules and norms, uh, quote-unquote, and so he's going to push his – Supreme Court nominee through with 51
1: votes, probably Manchin will vote uh, for uh, whomever in Heitkamp and whoever,
2: whatever other. So are you Democrats. suggesting, when
4: you say pack the court, Maurice, so are you suggesting the, the, the next, as, that they should do defense. what uh, tr- what Roosevelt tried to do, which is expand yeah. the number of justices yeah. on the court yeah. from 9 to yeah. 12 or
1: 13? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. In 20 when there is a Democratic president and a Democratic-led Senate.
4: Yeah. I'm I'm with you. I'm with you. Actually, I I was wrong about Roosevelt. What Roosevelt did, and Maurice, thank you for the call. Excellent point. Uh, What Roosevelt did is he said that any justice over 70 years old would become a justice emeritus. Because at that point, all the old guys were the ones who were blocking progress. And all of them together would get one vote. And then they would add new justices to bring the court up to nine votes. And uh, I'm not sure that that's the way you'd want to do it today because that would probably exclude Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but who knows? I, you know, We need to look at this. And, and we will talk about it uh, tomorrow, no doubt. So thanks so much for being with us today. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. We need your help. Get out there, get active, tag. You're it. We'll see you tomorrow. Please support your local station. Thank you so much.
1: You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit tomhartman.com.